That's when I knew that this Beaver team, well, maybe this program can be okay. Maybe they can be good. Maybe they can be great. I guess that was my battle, you know, not, not to keep baseball like he had to do. You had a terrific team that got absolutely screwed by the NC2A committee. They thought that they were going to hammer us and we were going to run away and say, okay, we've had enough, we give. This is Dynasty in the Woods, the story of Beaver Baseball. I'm Josh Warden. Where we left off last time, Jack Riley had ridden off into the proverbial sunset, having successfully maintained the Beaver baseball program into the 1990s, when new head coach Pat Casey took over a program that still had plenty of room to grow. But at least Pat had a program to work with. As for what he did with that program from 1994 and beyond, well, that's all on tap today. For a jam-packed history lesson of Beaver baseball in the 90s and 2000s, get ready for episode four, tracking the rise of Beaver baseball. I've known Pat forever, and he's very competitive. Him and Jack are very similar in a lot of in a lot of ways. Going from where Oregon State was as a program when Pat Casey took over the facilities to the postseason drought, I mean, it really is kind of hard to comprehend. He's obsessed with winning. He's a competitor. He loves that program. He built it from nothing. I mean, there was chain link fences there when he built it. He built that thing from the ground up. As much as Jack Riley had done to save the program, when he handed off the reins to Pat Casey in 1994, this wasn't the Ritz-Carlton of baseball programs by any means, especially in terms of the facilities. Our backstop was basically chicken wire, and they had the little, little press box back then. It was pretty small. What, what did the, the grandstands at that point when you were playing, what did that look like surrounding the field? Well, pretty empty. <laughs> Ron Dyer was a catcher for Jack Riley and points out the other piece to this. Not only were facilities lacking, so was attendance. We did have a few people in the stand, but a lot of them were either your girlfriend, your family. Back in those days, it was, I don't even recall me going to a baseball game. Randy Holmes played football for OSU during the Jack Riley era and saw how the baseball program wasn't quite packing the seats. I think I went to a couple games or something at the time just because I knew some of the guys that were playing. But it wasn't, it was definitely not a big drop. They didn't even charge for baseball games when uh, Jack Riley was there. And even in Pat's early days, you could just walk in. Yeah, I don't think it was that big a deal. I mean, I think people went there to drink beer and sit in the sun. I mean, really, people would go sit up in the stands and sunbathe. I mean, you know, I think that's more of what it was for. The wooden bleachers with only girlfriends and parents. You know, those are the only people that would come to the games. Maybe a student passing by would stop and watch an inning. Chris Pine pitched for the Beavers in the 90s when there was still only a field and some bleachers, and that was about it. It only makes Pat Casey's recruiting efforts more impressive because he couldn't use facilities as a talking point. So, you know, it was the decision to go play with that team and the coach, you know, because these other universities where I was looking at, you know, had stadiums and packed crowds, and, you know, we had an outfield that the ball would drop and get lost in because it was so mushy. One of the things Pat Casey and Jack Riley had in common was not only the facilities they had at their disposal, but also how each of them took a hands-on approach with those facilities. He had me out there at four o'clock in the morning pulling that heavy tarp, 
This is Jess Lewis, who's most famous at OSU for his standout football and wrestling careers, but he was also a groundskeeper later on for Oregon State, and baseball took up more time than any other sport. And by the way, Jess is not saying Pat Casey told him to put on the tarp at 4 a.m. He's saying Pat Casey was there with him at 4 a.m. No matter what the facilities were like, though, Pat Casey had a vision from the beginning of making Oregon State a destination program. When I first got here, we were playing somebody in a tournament. I think it was Texas A&M, and the kid was all excited. And I said, hey, we want people excited about playing us. We want to be Texas A&M, Miami, Florida, whoever it may be. Build our own identity. One of the biggest steps to doing that had to do with rebuilding what Oregon State already had, as in what they'd had for a long, long time. Before there was Chicago's Wrigley Field in 1914 or Boston's Fenway Park in 1912, there was Coleman Field in Corvallis. The one thing it's always had going for it is it's an absolutely perfect setting for college baseball. So many places you've moved a ballpark off campus. Coleman Field has been there since 1907. Kip Carlson used to cover the team for the Corvallis Gazette Times and later worked in sports information for the baseball program. The campus has grown up around it and you had kind of the long line of evergreen trees behind left field, you know, that really kind of forested setting. You know, Jack Riley's wife, Jean, I think was the one that planted the trees in center field for a hitter's backdrop. Of all ballparks used continuously since their opening, pro baseball or college, no venue dates back as far as Oregon State's own Coleman Field. After 90 years, Coleman Field had plenty of charm, but also plenty of wear and tear. It was like you'd see a, maybe a high school park. I remember when UCLA came into town, they were just looking around at the stadium, they go, what kind of park is this? It wasn't real uh, fan friendly. A nice ballpark, but a very modest in nature ballpark with the wooden stands, and uh, it was not high on bells and whistles. Historic ballpark, had unbelievable character, Oh, really, there was no stadium. The bleachers were rotten out. The press box was coming apart. You know, they wheeled in a little box for the ticket stand on game day. So we needed to build a stadium. The nice thing for Pat Casey is that he didn't exactly have to fight the same thing Jack Riley did. Jack Riley had to keep the baseball program afloat, and by the time he resigned in 94, things were more stable. The imminent possibility of disbanding the program had more or less subsided. But the next hurdle was not keeping baseball at Oregon State, but keeping baseball literally in place, as in geographically maintaining the baseball field where it's been since 1907. I've seen drawings of what was proposed for that area where the track went that would have included the baseball field and a softball field. This idea had been considered for decades. In fact, the track and field had already gotten moved, but baseball had managed to avoid it and thus enjoy the beautiful scenery in the heart of campus and the history of one of the oldest ballparks in the world. But the same blessing of Coleman Field's location was also a bit of a curse. They wouldn't permit any kind of improvement in the facilities, nothing. This is Ralph Coleman Jr. Coleman Field is named for his father, the late coach Ralph Coleman. As Ralph Jr. points out, no improvements were allowed for decades leading up to the 90s because the university had long been considering moving the ballpark or even cutting the program entirely. After all, why upgrade the stadium when you're not even sure if the stadium is there to stay? Especially with the location of the field being in the heart of campus, that's prime real estate. So the university also wanted to use that property for other purposes. 
So for decades, the baseball program was blessed by its fantastic location, but also handcuffed by that very blessing, unable to fully maximize on everything that location could offer. Other than adding an outfield fence, the ballpark that Dow Pulling used back in the 50s largely stayed the same for 40 years. Very little in the way of advancement for, for the facilities. Was it the same wooden bleachers from the time you played all the way through the 90s? Yes, yes, like a high school, like a high school bleachers. No stadium upgrades happened for decades, but when Paul Risser became the university president in the late 90s, the baseball program finally got the green light. They get an okay to use the land where Coleman Field is to put a baseball stadium there. That's a big step in the right direction, but the elephant in the room is, where's the money going to come from? If you hadn't picked up on this already, money isn't exactly free-flowing when it comes to college baseball programs in general, especially teams in the North. Pat Casey knew fundraising would be key, and when he was hired, that's what he told the athletic director at the time, Dutch Bachman. You know, when I first got here, Dutch just said, yeah, if you can raise some money, go ahead. He never dreamed we'd raise the money. So, you know, I'm, I'm pounding the pavement pretty hard between here in Portland and Salem and Seattle and Sacramento and wherever. Pat Casey traveled all over trying to fundraise, getting his biggest break with a $2.3 million donation from the Goss family that helped spark the rebuilding project four years into the Pat Casey era in 1998. The name Coleman Field hasn't gone away, but the official title of the stadium was expanded to honor the Goss family as well. Hi again, everybody from Goss Stadium of Coleman Field on the campus of Oregon State University in Corvallis. It is so nice to come to the ballpark now and to see the facilities. Ron Dyer finished his OSU career in 1981, so he only played at the old Coleman Field, but he definitely savors how things have improved. In fact, I'm a season ticket holder. It is so awesome to come to the, the ballpark now and just watch how things have, have turned. To actually get that grandstand put in where you had decent places people could go sit, I think was a signal to people that, yeah, we are serious about having baseball here and trying to do it right. People could see that there was a commitment to baseball. Hey, they got a stadium now. There's no more, you know, wood plank bleachers. There's no more kids with chalk, writing chalk stuff on the pavement, down the asphalt, under the bleachers like the old days. This is going to be real college baseball again, and that's what happened. Compared to Jack Riley's days where he butted heads with administration, Jack saw a much different storyline playing out a few years into Pat Casey's tenure. Mitch Barnhart was a blessing for all the non-income sports. Mitch Barnhart became the athletic director at Oregon State just four years after Jack Riley stepped down, and he was the sort of AD that Jack Riley wished he had. He cared and he raised baseball's budget Mitch was vitally involved with the baseball program and helped Pat. Pat did the heavy lifting in almost all of it, but Mitch is very skilled at what he does, and he helped the Goss Stadium at Coleman Field project and gave the kind of support Coach Casey needed to help develop the ballpark in 98. Barnhart was the athletic director from 98 to 2002, during which the baseball stadium was rebuilt and the $12 million Merritt Truax Center was constructed, allowing year-round indoor practice availability for sports like football, softball, and baseball. Playing at the same times and practicing at the same times, both of us were all trying to use McAlexander Fieldhouse before Truax was built. 
Shauna Felt was an Oregon State softball player in the late 90s and early 2000s, so she remembers the battles for access to McAlexander Fieldhouse beyond the left field wall of Goss Stadium at Coleman Field, where both teams would try to practice before all the new facilities were built. So there was no Triox, so we were always fighting for McAlexander baseball and softball for those batting cages that are in there and that like crappy floor and it's all dark. By 2001, the Truax Center was built, the baseball stadium was established, and a year later, it was said, let there be light. One of the longtime fantastic OSU donors, Burt Babb, paid to get lights put in. Now you're able to practice it in the evenings, play some night games so people can come out after work. A few years prior, teams from the South wouldn't give a second thought to playing in Corvallis, Oregon. Now, Oregon State had a premier location for college baseball right here in the Willamette Valley. No more competing for batting cages with the softball program. No more rotting grandstands. Pat Casey's vision had blossomed. What he did at Goss, Pat deserves a tremendous amount of credit for that. The vision and the foresight to change the ballpark and to keep changing it, not just be settled for the initial change in 99. Well, that was, that was Pat. You know, Pat did that. He built that thing. When I got to Oregon State after Jack's career, there were so many things that were different. You know, I didn't have to fight the fights that he had to to keep baseball. Unlike his predecessor, Pat Casey didn't have to worry about baseball being cut. His battle had to do more with building up the facilities to a competitive level and then showcasing on the field what a team from Oregon could accomplish. It's good baseball up here. We know how much better we could be if we were ever given the opportunity to show people that we could play with teams in the South. And that was, that, I guess that was my battle, not to keep baseball like he had to do or not to fight to get another dollar for the budget. Or, you know, my fight was that, you know, we're not going anywhere by just playing up here in the North. In other words, Jack Riley's accomplishment was helping OSU baseball survive in the North. Pat Casey's goal was seeing Beaver baseball flourish nationwide. Late 90s, it was very strong. You had a group from 96 through 98 that really had a terrific program. Kip Carlson, who worked in sports information for OSU at the time, remembers Oregon State baseball in the late 90s being ready for a new challenge. They actually started looking at the Northern Division and trying to bring it along a little more as a conference because up through 97, a lot of the non-conference games were Linfield, Willamette, Western Oregon, a lot of those types of things. So your strength of schedule wasn't going to be very good. At that point, the Pac-10 was split in half with the Northern and the Southern Divisions. Similar in name to Pac-12 football nowadays, but not similar in reality. In Pac-12 football, teams play interdivision games all the time. In Pac-10 baseball in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the two divisions were much more distinct from one another. Yeah, you had a Pac-10 Northern Division and a Pac-10 Southern Division. And so they were two separate leagues that they would play their own round robin and go from there. This had been the case since 1970. Two divisions that shared a conference name, but not a conference schedule. Assistant coach Dan Spencer came to OSU in 1997 and remembers how the Beavers got very familiar with teams from their region. In 97, we played eight games in conference against Washington, eight games in conference against Washington State, eight in conference against Portland State. That was our NORPAC schedule. 
When I went to the coaches in the Pac-10 in the South, the six-pack, they were very honest. They just said, hey, man, we got a great thing going here. They did somewhat of an experiment. Northern schools were kind of asking, why are we even having baseball if we're going to be behind such an eight ball? And so the conference put in a rule. The Southern teams had to each play two series against Northern Division schools. Since there were fewer Northern Division schools, they would each get three series against the South. To try to keep us from pushing and joining, they gave us nine games in 98 to play, and they wouldn't count on the record, but they supposedly help our RPI. And so part of that, too, was if you're a Southern school, you're going to have to come up and play the Northern Division teams on their home field. And that hadn't happened, I don't think, since the conference was unified as the Pac-8 back in the late 60s. That's a momentous change. The teams from the South normally were so superior, they didn't even play teams from the North. And if they did, they stayed put while the Northern teams came to them. In 1998, the South had to venture northward to play in the rain and cold. Even better, OSU was ready for them. Now, we had a really good team in 98. We played UCLA and we played Arizona at home. We swept them both. It actually swept series from UCLA and Arizona at home. We swept UCLA, we swept Arizona, and we nearly took two or three from the eventual national champion in in USC. Ryan Leip was the third baseman on the 1998 team. The year before, UCLA was ranked at the top. Eric Burns, Valiant, Chase Utley, pretty good club. They came to our place and they got swept. I remember Arizona, they were ranked at the time, I want to say sixth in the country. They came to our place and they got smoked pretty good. So on one hand, the experiment went great for Oregon State. They held their own against the South. And since the whole idea was structured in part to help teams like Oregon State have a better strength of schedule and therefore maybe get an at-large bid, it seemed like everything was falling into place. 98, you had a terrific team that got absolutely screwed by the NC2A committee. We were 7-2 and two against those teams. USC won the national championship and we didn't even get to go to regional. That just tells you how bad it was. Not getting in in 98 was absolutely unconscionable. OSU went 35 and 14 that year, including the much improved strength of schedule. But the Beavers did not get an at-large bid. Against one of the best conferences in the nation, you've shown you're pretty darn good and ended up with a pretty good record. Couldn't quite get past Washington in 98 for the division title. Here's where the conference realignment shenanigans go a step further. The one thing that really helped us is that Portland State dropped baseball. Then you have to thank Portland State in some ways for dropping baseball after the 98 season because that meant you were down to three teams in the Northern Division. NC2A rules, you can't have a three-team division. And so they had to get absorbed into the actual Pac-10. Finally, the Northern schools like Oregon State arrived at the doorstep of what they had sought for so long. And even Portland State dropping baseball was merely the final piece of the puzzle. Remember the story from 1994 from last episode? Jack Riley had resigned when Oregon State won the division but didn't get into the postseason. Washington State's infractions had taken away the league's automatic bid. Well, that whole scenario from 94 is what started the domino chain. Portland and Gonzaga said, well, if we don't have a shot in an automatic bid, then to heck with it. We're going to go back and play in the West Coast Conference. At first, the problem from the Washington State violations was that the league dropped below six teams, which meant no automatic postseason for the division champ. But without that automatic bid, Portland and Gonzaga left, which then put the Northern Division in danger of not having enough teams to exist as a league at all. So you're down to four. That was the minimum that you could have to have an actual division by NC2A rules. And so when Portland State pulled the plug on baseball, that was what necessitated unifying the back team. 
If there's an element of redemption here, it's that Washington State's recruiting violations may have victimized Jack Riley's team in 1994, but it started a chain of events that eventually boosted Pat Casey's program in 1999 to finally join the unified Pac-10 conference. Not that the teams from the South were happy about it. The Pac-6, the two Arizona schools, UCLA, USC, Stanford, Cal, you know, they didn't want to come together. And so we did in 99. That was the president's decision. It was kind of a kicking and screaming against the Pac-10 South coaches that had their six-pack and a pretty good deal going there. The Southern coaches thought that allowing the Northern schools in was going to hurt their RPI, was going to hurt their chance to do the things they wanted to do in postseason. I would say that they probably didn't think very highly of us. The conference didn't become a whole until 99, so baseball in the Northwest didn't exist for the rest of the world. Not only did the South try to avoid the unified Pac-10, even the coaches in the North were uncertain if their programs could handle it. I'm not sure that I had anybody in the North that was coaching at the time that was very supportive of it. Um, I was kind of the, a little bit of the Lone Ranger there on thinking that we could play with the South. The Northern schools had joined the conference, but one thing that had not changed was what the Southern teams believed the Northern teams were capable of. There was a palpable air of superiority, just like Jack Riley endured when he coached the Beavers. I competed as hard as I could against those guys because they showed us no respect. No respect in any way. Barad Dato, the great USC coach, said, do they play baseball anywhere north of Berkeley? And Pat also had a lot of little intricacies against their coach and their program with their high and mighty attitude towards everything. The bias was unbelievable. This is Arizona State and USC and UCLA and Stanford back to back. It was, you guys don't know what you're getting into. In fact, that was the message Pat Casey received at the first coaches meeting once the conference was unified. Well, I had one of the coaches in the South tell me with all respect, Casey, hey, you know, I'm not sure you guys know what you're getting into. The coach that Pat Casey is referring to is Mark Marquis, Stanford's head coach at the time. For the record, Casey has no beef with Mark Marquis. They're good friends. But that was just the status quo for what coaches in the South thought of the North. The coaches in the Pac-6, Bob Milano, Gary Adams, Mike Gillespie, Pat Murphy, Jerry Stitt, Mark Marcus, they were fabulous to me. Now, they didn't want to be in the league, and they thought that they were going to hammer us, and we were going to run away and say, okay, we've had enough, we give. That one comment has become bulletin board material and an often retold story over the years. I remember when they had the first Pac-10 meeting with all the coaches. And so Kay said to me, he goes, Mark Marcus said to me, he goes, you guys don't know what you're asking for. You think you want to be in this conference, but you're going to find out you really don't want to be in it. Dan Spencer remembers 20 years ago, Pat Casey telling him the same story you just heard from Pat moments ago. Now, there was one coach in the South that was slightly more open to Oregon State and the teams from the North joining. That was Mike Gillespie at USC. Mike Gillespie, rest in peace, my friend. He's the guy that stood up in the, in the meeting and said, you know, it might not be good for USC, but it's good for our conference, and I think that we ought to, we ought to bring him in. Mike Gillespie didn't necessarily want to keep playing Oregon State, but he had been impressed with playing the Beavers in 1998, and USC had been plenty successful that year anyways, winning the national championship that season. You know, he told me afterwards, he said, I, I'm more than impressed with your club, especially your pitching. He said, as deep as your pitching is, I think if you get in a regional, you got a chance to win that thing. 
You know, he had some support from uh, Gillespie. They took two or three from us at their park, but, you know, they recognized we were pretty good. Most of the other clubs in that area, you know, they were pretty skeptical. The skeptical teams in the South weren't the only ones who had to deal with the change. Northern schools themselves also had a reckoning at hand. Northern Division schools kind of had to decide, are we really going to be serious about baseball? Oregon State had long been a school that really wasn't serious about baseball, at least not from an administrative level. Jack Riley fought so many battles with the athletic department because he cared about the sport more than they did. But in 1999, when Oregon State was on the cusp of making a name for itself in a unified Pac-10 and really needed the entire athletic department's support, it got that support. A new baseball stadium was constructed in 99, the budget was increasing, and the likelihood of Oregon State dropping the sport had receded. Oregon State was all in on baseball and was raring to go for the first season of unified Pac-10 competition in 1999. 99 was an absolutely miserable experience. The 99 season, I, I think every time I get with Pat and we spend any time at all together, we one way or another find a way to start laughing about the 99 season. You know, it, it was it was tough, really tough. When I talked with Gary Henderson, Gary said, I can't go long talking with Case without the 99 season coming up. <laughs> what is it about 1999 that's so memorable? Well, it was our first year in the South. That's a lonely trip in 99. A lonely trip is right. While the 1998 roster was full of veteran, talented players, the 99 squad was younger, wide-eyed, and mostly unprepared for what hit them. That 99 club lost more games than any Beaver baseball team in history. Beaver baseball started 114 years ago, and no OSU team before 99 had ever lost more than 30 games, nor has any team since. But in 99, Oregon State lost 35 games. Granted, college baseball schedules used to be shorter, and it's easier to lose more games when you play more games, but even in terms of winning percentage, this was the worst season of Beaver baseball in over 60 years. The first season after Mark Marquis told Pat Casey, you're not ready for this, OSU joined the conference and played like they weren't ready for this. It was a direct challenge, and he was right. There were some days early, in, you know, in 99 especially, where you're like, you know what, he might have been right. We, we may not be wanting to be in this thing every weekend, but without great risk and great challenge, there's no great reward. Even if the 1999 team had won eight more games than they actually did, they still would have lost more games than the previous two seasons combined. It was a bad year. Pitching coach Gary Henderson recalls how the problems in 99 actually started back in the fall, when the Goss Stadium construction project meant the team had to travel to Crescent Valley High School to practice. Couldn't take BP because the guys were rattling balls off the windshields of the student cars, so we had to wait until everybody was out of the parking lot. Portland Airport was under construction. Uh, it seemed like every time we flew into Portland, it was 11 o'clock on a Sunday night and it was pouring down rain and we had to push all the equipment to the other side of the parking structure. And then obviously the on-field experience was very underwhelming. After all the years of Oregon State clamoring to play in the South, the Beavers were finally able to do that, but it just happened at the perfectly wrong time. In 98, we were really, really good. We had complete turnover, and we were 7-17 we were seven to 17 our first year. And so, you know, there were a lot of meetings and a lot of head scratching. When we got to 99, it was a full schedule. It was bad timing for us from the standpoint. We would have looked a little better if we would have had the 98 team in 99. But in 99, all those guys were gone. The draft, seniors, and we weren't so good. We were, we're not good at all. 
You had lost an absolutely fantastic senior class from 98. It was one hell of a time to be thrown into the deep end. Oh, I felt huge responsibility for all the players, the program, the boosters. Now I had to make sure that I believed. You have to get used to that. You know, if you drive around in a 1979 Pinot, and maybe this is a bad analogy, but then you get in a Porsche, it's a different deal. It feels different when you hit the gas pedal. According to assistant coach Dan Spencer, that's what the new league felt like to Oregon State. If you didn't show up, you know, Stanford could drop a 30 on you at their place and you'd be done with you, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, which happened. Technically, it was only 22 runs that Stanford scored one Sunday afternoon, a couple years after Oregon State joined the conference, but it probably felt like losing by 30, especially when it, again, proved Stanford coach Mark Marquis at least partially correct. I don't think I did a very good job of keeping my competitiveness out of knowing that it was our first time and, and that we were young and that we had a new club. The 1999 season was hard on Pat Casey. I think you wear it a little heavier if you're the head guy and probably learn more about coaching in 99, which was the worst year I had at Oregon State, worst year I had in my coaching career, than I probably did in all the other years combined. We talked in episode one about how Pat Casey changed as a coach over the years. Well, one of the major factors in how he changed was 1999. There's just a lot of things that you learn from the game itself. Losing was so impactful and so miserable that it was hard just to walk around and feel proud of yourself when you, when you got beat. So I had to not accept losing. I had to learn how to handle losing better. And then when I did that, I became a better coach. As for the rest of the 99 season, Oregon State did take some solace in the final weekend of the year when the Beavers swept Washington State to nearly double their conference win total. Three of those came the last series against Washington State, who was the, the tail ender. So I wish you didn't finish last that year, but I remember coming home and talking to mom after that final game of the Washington State series, and she goes, oh, it's too bad the season's over. They're just getting hot. I'm just thinking, no, <laughs> you don't get it. <laughs> that's, that's just a good one to end on. At the end of the day, the final record of 19 wins, 35 losses, wasn't the end of the world. It's not like OSU got kicked out of the Pac-10 after one year, but it was a wake-up call. That was the eye-opener, I think, that, hey, we're going to have to get better or this is not going to be a fun run here. It was a little bit more difficult the first couple of years, but I, I know one thing, we, we were in it, so we had, to, we had to figure it out. Never giving up and never giving in. That was how Pat coached the game. Failure is not the end-all if you truly believe in yourself. But if you don't, it could be. It's something that you almost have to go through, I think, if you're ever going to get to where you want to be. Even in that tough 99 season, Pat Casey, the ever-aggressive coach, kept hammering away. You could see even then that Pat was building a scrappy, tough team. We had a team meeting, and Pat pulled out a page of his Franklin planner, and he had written down some definitions, and one of them was competition. Assistant coach Gary Henderson remembers Pat Casey making it clear to his players what level of competition he expected. He read the competition definition to the club, and I, I just thought it was kind of a, I wouldn't call it a, necessarily a watershed moment for the season because we didn't necessarily turn it around, but it was a, a really good moment for Pat in terms of really kind of identifying, you know, where we were at that point and what we needed to address. And believe it or not, I still have that piece of paper somewhere. Case wouldn't let anybody believe that we couldn't be good. Another assistant coach who was there in 99 and well beyond, Dan Spencer. 
even as we were not national contenders in the late 90s and early 2000s, the bar was still high. We knew we had to get better players. Spencer coached for 11 years at OSU, including a few years as recruiting coordinator and associate head coach. We used to have conversations in the office and we would put a mark on, I can't remember the color combinations, but green was, hey, this guy's a good player. Red, this guy's got a chance to be a Pac-10 all-conference player. Blue, this guy's a, he, he's okay, but he's not. Well, you know, in the beginning when we went to the full pack, we realized we had too many blue players. Dan Spencer will add that he's not disparaging any players OSU had before this point, but it was clear that in order to reach the bar Pat Casey had set, something had to change. We knew that we had to raise our level because those blue players were just great when you had a wood plank stadium and then, but when, we, when the stadium came in, all of a sudden you couldn't recruit a better player. Now, Oregon State could theoretically recruit better players, and being in the full Pac-10 meant that Oregon State had to recruit better players. The prevailing assumption was to do that meant getting more players from the South. I wasn't sure he'd ever be able to get into California, Arizona, wherever, and recruit really high quality players, national team kind of players. I consider it amongst the, the great blessings of my life to have been asked to fill in for both Kip Carlson and Daryl Lonnie. Neither were able to do a series in 99 at Cal State Northridge. Four years after Pat Casey transitioned into the head coaching job at Oregon State, another career took a turning point that of radio announcer Mike Parker. I was driving a cab in Portland. Yeah, I'd been let go at 1190KEX in Portland. Michael Thompson came in and took my job. That's former NBA top overall pick Michael Thompson, who played for the Blazers, Spurs, and Lakers, and also happens to be the father of Golden State Warrior Clay Thompson. He's tough to compete with. So Michael ended up doing the work that I'd been doing and covering the Portland Trail Blazers. And you get a, a beloved blazer to take that same seat. I, I understand intellectually why, you know, why I saw the end of the line at KEX. Mike Parker started looking for jobs anywhere and everywhere. His two leads were in Sacramento and Houston. Didn't get either job and thus was available when Mike Corwin said, can you fill in for us? We desperately need somebody to go to L.A. and call these games. You know, I had the decision, do I drive a cab this weekend or go call baseball in Los Angeles? That was my professional choice. And I chose the latter and was thrilled to be able to, to get back to what I really wanted to do in this life. That was 1999 when Mike Parker first broadcasted Oregon State Baseball. Mike is now the beloved voice of Beaver Athletics, not only for baseball, but also football and men's basketball, broadcasting countless historic moments in Beaver athletic history over the last two decades. But back to where we left off with the baseball program and the difficult 1999 season, there was a particular game in that year when Mike saw shades of what was to come, and it was Oregon State bringing a seven-game losing streak into a matchup with Arizona State. I remember getting to call that game that day against a team that had just played for the national championship the year before in Arizona State, and the Beavers beat them 9-8 to in a back-and-forth game, rallying to win. And I thought, wow, this outstanding coach who's taking his lumps this year with his team is building a ballpark, a program, and he just beat Arizona State. And I remember thinking, boy, this program has a chance to be okay. That's what I thought, to be okay, maybe to be good. 
After the difficult 1999 season, Pat Casey had spent five years in Corvallis with zero postseason berths. The 2000 season was slightly better, but still no NCAA tournament. In 2001, the Beavers were within striking distance of making a regional, and it all came down to the final weekend. In 01, we had to beat USC to really have an opportunity to make a regional berth. And we had to win two or three to get to regional. We lost the first game to Mark Pryor in extra innings, and we gave up one run in the next two games. Mark Pryor was the Friday starter, Courier was the Saturday starter, and we lost to Pryor in extra innings on Friday. We beat Courier on Saturday. Last game, I think we were down a run, eighth or ninth inning. The final game of being able to go two out of three against you know USC, and on Sunday, we were down by one run had a runner on base. Our shortstop, Will Hudson, was on first base, and this was the ninth inning. And I got called on to pinch hit against a right-handed pitcher, Brian Bannister, which actually ended up being one of my teammates with the New York Mets. This is Seth Peach, an outfielder on that 2001 squad who came up to bat in the ninth inning, down by a run the last game of the season, when the Beavers needed one more win to likely end the postseason drought. Sometimes when you pick up a bat, it just feels good and you just feel like you're going to have, you know, a really solid opportunity and you're going to hit a ball hard. And I got in there and Brian threw me a first pitch ball and I'm just like, man, this the next pitch, I'm going deep. I just knew it. And so he threw me a high hanging curve ball and I hit it, but I didn't hit the barrel 100%, but I knew I hit it good. Seth Peach hits a ball toward left field, but on a standard Coleman field day with the wind blowing out, who's going to be out of there. I thought the game was over. Everybody in the crowd stood up and were screaming. I knew that the game was over and I hit a home run walk off. And I'm rounding first base and I see Will Hudson running back to first. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? That ball's out of here. And their outfielder caught it literally right on the fence in the warning track. Seth Peach just missed hitting a pitch. It would have gone out of the ballpark and would have been one of the dramatic moments, I think, in the history of the program. Nice sunny day, wind blowing in from the east like it does on those days. Knocked it down, didn't get it, didn't make it in. And so you're kind of going, what? What do we ever got to do to get into this thing? The wind hung it up. That's my excuse. <laughs> but it didn't go over the fence. It was an out. That was two outs. And then we ended up getting a third out and USC won. But the ball that I hit would have been a walk-off home run. And it... It haunted me for the rest of my baseball career. I wrote, remember USC underneath my bill, sophomore, junior year, and even into the, you know, my professional career. And we got beat one to nothing on Sunday, and we didn't go to a regional. That, that hurt. It was a fight, but there was also light at the end of the tunnel. Well, what a day, what a game. That quickly, in the unified conference, the Beavers had moved into contending onto the final pitch for a chance to go to postseason. OSU also missed the NCAA tournament in 2002 and 2003, and 2004, extending the postseason drought to 18 years. As Pat Casey was going through his first 10 years at Oregon State with zero postseason berths to show for it, the previous coach, Jack Riley, was keeping a close eye on the program, and he saw how rough things were for Pat. Well, I saw those things in Pat because he struggled. As a matter of fact, Mitch Barnhart almost fired him. My AD walked in and said, hey, I'm going to tell you right now, we need to win more games. So my job was on the line. I signed 11 straight one-year contracts. You know, tells you how much confidence they had in me, right? There maybe wasn't a lot of confidence in Pat Casey at that point, but Jack Riley was not worried, and here's why. Jack was a firm believer in a theory he'd gotten from yet another Oregon State coach, Ralph Miller, the legendary basketball coach. 
Well, I was pretty close with Ralph, and he basically said, you don't do anything at this level less than about 10 years and really know what you're doing. That theory played out in Ralph Miller's career, since it took his teams about 10 years before becoming regulars in the NCAA basketball tournament. So when Jack Riley saw some of the struggles the Beaver baseball team was having in Pat Casey's first decade, Jack wasn't phased. He just chalked it up to the Ralph Miller theory. He figured Pat would figure things out eventually, although there was one specific thing he thought Pat Casey needed to change. I mean, he didn't even get a smell. Washington, Washington State dominated for the first three, four years because he was all offense. And pitching and defense wins it. And he called me one time down in, in Arizona, really down. And, you know, my advice to him was basically, you've been a winner all your life. You know how to win. You just got to suck it up and, and, and start figuring out. If I can give you one bit of advice, defense and pitching win baseball games. Pat Casey took that to heart. He recruited some great pitchers and hired tremendous pitching coaches like Gary Henderson, Dan Spencer, and later on, Nate Yeske. Basically, he's had some great players, but his pitching depth and his ability to throw pitchers out there is what's won the championships. That's crazy to hear he was all offense because when I would hear him doing interviews in 2018, he would say, our offense is good, but it's pitching that's going to get us there. He had to learn that. (laughs) Ralph Miller theory... It took him that long. It took him at least seven years. He was hired in 1995. In 2005, they made it. That's 10 years. Indeed, something changed after 10 years for Pat Casey and the Beavers. We'll see how that happened when we return in 60 seconds. This podcast gives free advertising to charities, including Kingdom Home. So Kingdom Home, our goal is to end child sex trafficking through prevention. We want to meet the physical, emotional, spiritual, and educational needs of boys and girls in our homes who are at risk of entering the sex trade. This is former Oregon State pitcher Matt Boyd. Matt and his wife Ashley established Kingdom Home in 2018. It's really, really special. It's just children who are living as children should, just pure joy, knowing that they will have a future going forward. Kingdom Home provides kids in Uganda with a safe place to live, access to education, and a path to either college or vocational training. With three homes for girls and another for boys, Kingdom Home is transforming the lives of over 100 kids. We're trying to equip leaders of tomorrow to hopefully make an impact in their way in their country. To learn more about Kingdom Home and how you can help, go to kingdomhome.org. That's kingdomhome.org. I mean, you know, we were just always a pitcher or an extra player away from really making a move. We didn't have enough pitching to give you a chance to win on all three days. We had some good pitching early on, but we did not have the depth. Gary Henderson was the pitching coach and recruiting coordinator at OSU in the late 90s and early 2000s. His first few years, he might have one or two good pitchers, but rarely did he have three solid starters. And he kept recruiting hard, including locally. A huge piece of what happened was that high school group of 2003. That group forever will be the group that turned Beaver baseball around. Early in the 2003 season, I was rooming with Dan Spencer on this trip, and we were kind of talking about, you know, the program in general, and he just goes, we got these three guys coming in that if we get a couple of bats, we're going to be pretty good. He was absolutely right. A whole new crop of talent came in that season. 
There were three pitchers Dan Spencer and the whole staff were most excited about, and it started with a two-sport athlete from just up the road. And I remember Pat also saying to me, we got a pitcher coming in from Newburgh named Dallas Buck. We need him to come if he comes and doesn't sign. If he comes, he's going to be a difference maker. Well, he didn't sign professionally. He came, played football in the fall, and then turned out to be a Friday night light I'll never forget that helped change the program. Dallas Buck, plus Jonah Nickerson, and Kevin Gunderson. They provided the pitching firepower and depth Oregon State had needed for so long. All of them local kids, too. Buck from Newburgh, Nickerson from Oregon City, and Gunderson from Portland. And they got the bats in that class, too. Cole Gillespie, another Portland kid, Mitch Canham from Southern Washington, Mike Lisman from Ontario, Oregon, not to mention other Oregonians who came to OSU in the years following, like Daniel Turpin from McMinnville, Mike Stoops from Lake Oswego, Darwin Barney from Portland, Joey Wong from Salem. And now you're talking about being pretty good, and you're not even talking about the fact that we already had Ellsbury. Oh yeah, Jacoby Ellsbury from Madras, Oregon, who came in a year prior to that great class and was there through 2005. And add Chris Kuna from Philomath and Jake Postalweight from Corvallis. We dominated the Northwest. We were getting 90% of the best players, or maybe that's too high. But Washington was getting a few, and occasionally a guy would make a mistake and go down to Stanford or Arizona State, but we were getting the right guys. I think there have been coaches in the state who felt the kids in the state couldn't play. I heard that. You know, it's like, well, we're not going to go anywhere unless we can get into California. The kids in Oregon and Washington just weren't good enough. And he proved that wrong. Pat not only proved them wrong, he also made Oregon State an easy team to root for by recruiting Northwest players, as any Beaver fan from Oregon probably lived near where one of the players was from. There's also a huge logistical benefit for recruiting local players. Before this time, OSU had more players from out of state, which has a drastic impact on scholarship numbers. You know, we had a lot of California kids, which was great, but out of state changes your percentage, and we're, we're in a percentage sport. So when you have the Oregon high school kids, you can give the same exact scholarship, but it's, it's half as much on the equivalency, and so you get more for your money when you can bring in the high school kids. That was one of the things that changed and made the O3 group so special in a recruiter's mind. Being the recruiting coordinator for OSU, Gary Henderson had to stretch out every scholarship as far as it could go, since Division I baseball programs only have 11.7 scholarships to work with. Those scholarships are divvied up across the roster, so a good chunk of the players are on around 50% scholarship. If you give a player a half scholarship, it takes up 0.5 of the allotment no matter where that player is from, in-state or out-of-state. So in that regard, it doesn't matter where the player is from, it's just 11.7 scholarships available, period. But Gary Henderson knows it's more complicated than that. Consider a Los Angeles kid who's got a partial scholarship offer from UCLA and from OSU, each offering a 50% scholarship. That kid and his family are going to have to pay the other 50% themselves. That price tag is vastly different. Paying in-state tuition at UCLA is way cheaper than going out of state to OSU. So the player could likely choose UCLA. That's where Gary Henderson might meet the kid halfway and offer something like a 75% scholarship. Maybe that's enough for the kid to come play for OSU, but that also used up more of the 11.7 scholarships. You make that deal with four kids from out of state, and all of a sudden, you've used up a full scholarship without getting any more players. So with all the in-state players in 03, Oregon State could offer good scholarships without breaking the bank, all while bringing in a stable of tremendous recruits. It was a win-win.
And speaking of wins, that 03 recruiting class put together a winning record in conference their sophomore year, the first time an Oregon State team had done that since the conference unified. Not only did they have a winning record, they went 19-5. and I remember Pat Casey saying in 03 and 04, we're a short stop away from really turning this thing around. We're getting other pieces in place and we need a short stop. And I remember him telling me, we got a guy coming in named Darwin Barney, and he's going to be a difference maker. Behold, 05, 06, 07. 2005, everything fell together. When we went to the World Series in 05, I mean, it changed absolutely everything. Oregon State reached the College World Series for the first time in five decades. That was 2005. They did not win the national championship that year. Heck, they didn't even win a game in the World Series, but Oregon State had still made it. They'd proven a team from the Northwest can make it to the biggest stage. To get to Omaha once, there was a part of me that thought, and that's enough. Just to get here once, that's enough if nothing ever else happens. But again, I remember these distinct moments in time with Pat Casey. In the airport in Omaha, when we were getting ready to fly home after the 2005 season, Pat and I were just standing and visiting, and he said to me as he was watching his players mill around the airport waiting to board the plane, he said, these guys don't understand quite yet. They could have won it this year. They, I think, were the best club here, and they could have won it this year, but they weren't quite ready to. But we can get back, and we can win the whole thing. Oregon State did return to the College World Series the next year, in fact, the next two years, both times reaching the final series, with the same result both times. Patterson ready, the 3-2 pitch, taken, strike three, called, and the Beavers are the national champions again! Along Oregon State's journey from a program fighting to stay afloat to back-to-back champions, one of the most meaningful milestones was not something that happened on the field, but at the field, the implementation of lights at Goss Stadium, which happened three years before that first Omaha run. It wasn't just that the lights were important for logistical reasons, although that's true, being able to play night games is good, but there was also a certain symbolic value back when Oregon State was barely removed from the woeful 1999 season. And the Beavers were much better in 2000 and won several series that year. And I thought, well, maybe they've reached okay now. And then Pat started to talk about, we need to get lights in the ballpark. Well, why are lights that important, Pat? He said, well, to host a regional, you got to have lights. The NCAA tournament includes 16 regionals, so you only host one if you're in the top 16 in the nation. I didn't say this immediately, but I thought it, host a regional? I don't get too carried away. That stayed with me for the rest of Coach Casey's run. That in 2000, he was talking about the need for lights because he was planning on believing that he'd be hosting a regional. At one point, Pat Casey's coaching counterparts didn't even want his team in their conference. Less than 10 years later, Casey's program captured two national championships. Well, I think it would have been a hard thing to predict in 1990. You know, look where the next generation of really good baseball players are going to come from, where they're going to play. And I think it's phenomenal. I think it speaks a lot to Pat. Yeah, I never thought they'd have the kind of success they did. That was stunning to me, that he could ever win a national championship there. I still can't believe it. I look back at that and think, my goodness, it's ridiculous. It was stunning to win one, let alone two and two in a row. It was stunning, but at the same time, 
After seeing the program grow incrementally, it wasn't really surreal to me. The first one in 06 kind of was, but after winning it again in 07, I just thought, well, that's what a Pat Casey program does. I know how hard it is to win. We talk about it all the time. I mean, how how are they doing it? This is Arkansas head coach Dave Van Horn. You know, it's not like they're in, a, you know, Houston where they can just run down the street and grab players. Well, I think if you look at those early years, they won the championships with Northwest players, Oregon players. You look back over the years, every position on the field, he found good players in Oregon and Washington to man those positions and did a great job, won with them and won big. I mean, a team outside the South or California hadn't won the College World Series since the 60s before Oregon State started doing this. I mean, it's just, it really is hard to fathom. A few years before you thought, oh my gosh, are we ever even going to make it into the postseason again? That was probably the most special thing. I grew up attending, you know, Oregon State baseball games and, and they were never really that great. I always had these thoughts, hey, that'd be cool to win a Pac-10 championship or something, but it didn't really seem all that realistic. This is Daniel Turpin, a pitcher on those three College World Series teams in 05, 06, and 07. He came from the Northwest, McMinnville, Oregon, and now coaches in the Northwest at Lewis and Clark College. To be a part of something where it's a lot of Northwest guys in the state of Oregon is just pretty unbelievable. And at the time, you know, I, I really had no idea just the magnitude of what we were doing. And the fact that today people will still remember all the players from those teams, and those teams might be the very reason I have a coaching job today. And that's the thing, you know, is if you're winning, everybody wants to be a part of it. That's what Oregon State Baseball found. Win two World Series in a row, you know, that'll do it. The game created a whole lot more joy than what we had early on. They did a whole lot more winning the last eight or ten years than they did the first six or seven. A whole lot more. You know, it's winning solves a lot of problems. It's fun. I think what elevated that program was the standard. Like, the standard of excellence. And, like, who, I mean, Corvallis, Oregon? We can recruit top players or we can win national championships. And that is right there an example of it's not location or history. It's that belief and it's that standard. Coach Casey just established that culture. He's been one of the great coaches in college baseball history. I mean, to take Oregon State to three consecutive college World Series and then win the two in a row. Built that thing from the ground up and it took a long time. He was there for a long time. How many programs now give coaches that much time? Pat Casey's team playing against Mark Markless and the Cardinal, and Mark had been one of the doubters about this whole thing. You guys don't know what you're getting into. Hope you know what you're getting in for in unifying the conference. This is going to be tough. Well, the beautiful thing is, as it turned out, it was Stanford that didn't quite know what it was getting into. It's right down deep in your soul and your will that gets you through the things that are very, very difficult. And then it's amazing how that same challenge arises when you're fighting for the very top prize. It's the same feeling you had when you're trying to prove that you could play in the conference that you had when you're trying to prove it can be a national championship. It's that same will, that inner will that got us through. I think the assistant coaches, a lot of credit go to the Dan Spencers and the Marty Lees and the Pat Baileys, guys that worked for him and did a tremendous job of recruiting and bringing people into Corvallis, into the Valley, and showing them what they've got there. And speaking of assistants, Gary Henderson deserves that credit too, although that was Gary himself humbly naming other assistants and not himself. But the point is Oregon State had proved to the rest of the country what a team from the Pacific Northwest could do, and it sent a message to the kids from the area. 
I remember being in sixth and seventh grade, kind of the time that I had decided I wanted and set my mind to playing college baseball were the years that obviously Oregon State won the back-to-back national championships and kind of put baseball in the Pacific Northwest on the map. Michael Gretler came from the Seattle area and stayed in the Northwest to play for Oregon State. Similar theme from another Pacific Northwest guy from a few years earlier who also watched that 06 College World Series with rapt attention, Matt Boyd. It's vivid. I remember where I was in, uh, in 2006. Uh, we were at the Junior Olympics, and uh, I remember sitting in our hotel room in Arizona. Matt Boyd grew up in Mercer Island, Washington, and the future major leaguer watched Oregon State win the national championship and saw that kids from the Northwest could not only stay home to play college baseball, but do so winning a national championship. I knew I wanted to play college baseball. I believed I was good enough, but then it was like, man, those are Northwest guys doing it. It was like, I want to play there. I remember watching those guys going, I want to play there. Boyd would go on to pitch in the College World Series in 2013. Gretler would follow him in 2017 and 18, along with countless other Northwest kids who found out they wouldn't have to travel to the South to play big-time college baseball. And not that Oregon State is the only good program in the Northwest, but in large part, Oregon State paved the way for all the others. I think the overall baseball product, you know, from high school and development, I think that's gotten a lot better in northern areas. I do think part of it is because of Oregon State. You have a team in an area that that has so much success on the national stage, and I just, I do think that they are related. As far as stories in the century, to this point, I think it's probably the top story. This is Aaron Fitt, who covers college baseball all around the country for D1 Baseball. It's amazing what they've done and to turn the state of Oregon into a, an epicenter for this sport. It's, it's bonkers. And sit back and marvel at, at you know, what, what has happened up there and how special it is. And it's just not an easy thing to do. And I don't know that anyone else will be able to do it again in our lifetimes in a climate like that. At one point scorned by coaches in the South, now Pat Casey and Jack Riley could stand proud having dismantled that perception of inferiority. There was an aura when we went south that because we were from Oregon and they were from Southern California, they had an advantage and it drove me nuts because I knew it and I couldn't get it across because there's no way the players would understand that until later on when all these Northwest players are crushing Southern California guys because the talent has always been up here. Jack Riley knew it the whole time, and if it wasn't for him, none of this would have happened. Yeah, he's like the grandfather. He's yeah. like a grandfather of Oregon State baseball. He um, is proud. He is proud that he helped save that program. Jack's an absolute phenomenal competitor, just like Pat. Get those Irish guys from Oregon, and good things happen. This has been episode four of Dynasty in the Woods. Coming up on the next episode, we discuss the 2018 team in particular, starting with an in-depth look into how that team used mental conditioning practices to transform their lives in and sometimes beyond baseball. That comes out next week, but you can gain access to every remaining episode right now. There's a link in the description to learn how. Radio broadcast from Learfield IMG College. Also some interview audio from the Oregon State University Sesquicentennial Oral History Project. My name is Josh Warden. A big thank you to Jack Riley and Pat Casey for spending about an hour each with me in their homes to talk about this amazing story. The Corvallis community is a better place because of Jack and Gene Riley and Pat and Susan Casey. Thank you.